This is Monster Manual Mash. This is the podcast where two guys go through every entry in the Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition Monster Manual, going entry by entry, creature by creature, looking at the text as written, looking at the ideas contained within that text. We look at how Wizards of the Coast is trying to get you to use these monsters in your games. What are the hooks of these monsters? What are they supposed to make you think and feel? Where do they come from? What are they about? What are they wearing? And this is all to help you uh, have a better game and to think better and to look better and to never have something, uh, never be left without anything to say at a party. Yeah, yeah, that's the that's the monster manual mash guarantee. You, yeah, uh, we, yeah, you'll be so much fun at parties. You'll have so many monster facts, and if it's not working, you're going to the wrong parties, man. Yeah, take it from us. Yeah, today, giant, big boys, they're huge. Uh, the entry is huge. It is yeah. like five or five or six pages, um, which is one of the biggest. I guess not for, uh, I guess the biggest ones are demons, devils, and dragons. This is like a close yeah. second yeah, to those ones. Close second in terms of like um, the the amount of like time given to them in the monster manual, but also like just their, just their, their, their importance in like a uh, fantasy settings, you know, their, their stature, you know? Yeah. You can't really get a fantasy uh, setting without something big in it. Yeah. And it doesn't get bigger than giants. Well, I guess it does, but. It's hard to have. It's hard to not have them. They're just big people. Yeah, they're the quintessential, like just like a big guy. Like it's, uh, yeah. it's, yeah. It's easy to have little people, and it's easy to have big people. Those are like two things you're guaranteed to have somewhere in a fantasy setting. Yeah, yeah. Um, in this, this game that we all know and love, Dungeons and Dragons, there are some specifics when we're dealing with giants because there are so many giant people we have to go to great lengths to differentiate all of them we already talked about the etten a while back which is basically yeah. a two-headed giant with its own particular thing going on we talked about the cyclops which is basically a giant with one eye sometimes a horn maybe yeah and uh there are many more to come that are like giants but these ones are different for the following reasons so we begin the chapter on giants with the opening paragraph, which I'll read word for word because I kind of like it. Ancient empires once cast long shadows over a world that quaked beneath the giants' feet. In those old days, these towering figures were dragon slayers, dreamers, crafters, and kings, but their kind fell from glory long ago. However, even divided among secluded clans, scattered throughout the world, the giants maintained the customs and traditions of old. So... They're sort of set up. Um, I remember talking about it a bit in the Cyclops episode, how they were sort of evidence of primeval creation. Like the, it's sort of like a first go at making a creature, which is why a Cyclops is sort of unfinished and also too large to really function. It's like a, it's like a piece of a mountain started walking around or something. Yeah, yeah. And it's the same with these. So these are sort of um, like the titans to the Olympian gods. These are like forces of nature, but they're still anthropomorphized. They're still yeah. kind of people-ish. And dragon slayers, dreamers, crafters, and kings, like they can't all be kings, but imagine a whole race of kings. Oh, man. A whole fantasy subspecies uh, of kings. Like that's some mythical stuff. They can't all be actual yeah. kings, but they're like they're king quality. Yeah, 
Yeah, they all got that that, that warrior poet king vibe, you know. Yeah, they're all like kind of paragons of some sort of yeah primitive uh, idea. Then we get into uh, some general information about them. They're old as legend. So in remote regions of the world, there are plinths, monoliths, statues of great giant empires that are now buried in desolate obscurity. These empires once sprawled across all the lands, but now the giants are in isolated tribes and clans. They're almost as old as dragons. Giants and dragons fought bitter generational wars that nearly destroyed both sides. Um, the original grudges are forgotten, and to this day, they seldom meet without a fight. Just a little bit of backstory, I guess you could use to uh, weaponize in an open sandbox type of yeah. situation. And uh, that's kind of a minor detail that's never really brought up again, but there is some, um, I think, Eastern European giants were explicitly fighters of dragons. That's in, cool. Uh, in old-timey folklore, but... We have we, only so much we can uh, dive into here without it becoming an incredibly long episode. So we have yeah. to leave it at that. Um, moving on to this other piece of kind of unique to D&D lore is the ordining. So each of the races of giants, cloud, fire, frost, hill, stone, and storm are related by culture and religion and history. And they view one another as kindred, but... There is a caste structure. The ordning is a strict hierarchy of individuals within a race, judged by a set of skills or qualities valued by that race. Uh, most giants make it their life's work to excel at these qualities, so you want to be the best you can be, so you can move up the ladder. But there's also a racial hierarchy. Uh-oh. Oh, no. Fantasy racism. Explicit fantasy racism. Accepted yeah. fantasy racism. And enforced yeah. by, uh, like, mythical biology. Yeah. So uh, you that's for you to deal with, um, listener. So the way this works is that, for example, the greatest chief of the hill giants is going to be inferior to the least of the stone giants. That's how uh, the ordinate works. It isn't even considered evil to disrespect or betray a giant of a lesser type. It's just rude. So you can do, you can pretty much do whatever you want. It might be uh, tactless, but no one will really think you did like something wrong. Yeah. And wonderfully, something that we have come to love from these books, the way they organize things. Um, so they just went to, they spend like half a page talking about this ordning and how the order of it all is so important. And then what order do they present the giants in? Alphabetical. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. if you want to know what the ordning is, you have to kind of dig into it. Um, it's like on a single line somewhere, but I believe it is. Um, hill, stone, frost, fire, cloud, and then storm at the top. Yeah, in like ascending order of in ascending uh, order. Yes, in, in an ascending ordering. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay, so now we get into the uh, the individual giants. So we're, each one gets a pretty hefty chunk of text. So I'm going to try to like float along over it and dig into a couple of interesting things mentioned in the details. But we got to. I want to keep it uh, keep it moving. Otherwise, we could keep going, which I guess isn't a problem. <laughs> I never know what to do. Do we want more detail? Do we want less? We are being uh, anal about going through the entire book, so why not spend an entire episode on a single type? But uh, I don't think we could spend months on the Giants, personally. Yeah, I think there. Yeah, that's true. And there, there is enough crossover, as distinct as they are, that there's like some general giant stuff we can get into. Yeah. So first, we got the cloud giants. 
They live extravagant lives high above the world. They don't really care about other races except for amusement. They are muscular. They have silver or blue hair. They live in family bands all over the world. Um, they turn to mist. They have airy domains in castles, tall mountain peaks, or on uh, actual solid cloud. Which is classic giant stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's Dragon the Beanstalk type of yeah. thing. Um, they're powerful spellcasters, and they are affluent princes. So this is the first subheading here. Um, so these are second in rank only to the storm giants. But as we will learn later, storm giants are reclusive and antisocial, whereas cloud giants are socially involved. So they are ordering the lesser giants, organizing the other castes, to seek out more wealth and beautiful art to hoard. So they're kind of like, uh, they're just like royalty. They're sort of Olympian gods where they're extremely powerful, but they still have understandably human appetites. Yeah. And they care about, you know, culture and art and stuff. Yeah. They, they care about showing off at least. I don't know yeah. if they like care about making art, but they care about having it, which is sort of how uh, I think we feel about a lot of uh, millionaires and billionaires. Oh, here's an interesting thing I think you would like. Uh, they keep extraordinary gardens with giant-sized fruit, and we explicitly have grapes as big as apples. <laughs> and apples well, the size of yeah. pumpkins. Yeah. I, was, yeah. I didn't know if you had the book in front of you. I was going to ask you what yeah. you thought um, an apple <laughs> would be the size of. And then a pumpkin the size of wagons. Yeah. Wagon-sized pumpkin is the cloud giant promise. That's great. Um, I like the, the sort of power scaling of their 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 garden fruits there. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because like it starts with like a grape the size of an apple, like that. I don't yeah. know why that's that's not that. Like it would be impressive to see a grape that big, but this is man, you couldn't believe these grapes. It was the most fantastic thing you've ever seen. It was like something out of a. It was the size of apples. Like it's uh, yeah. It's comparing, like a, it, I don't know. There's something funny about comparing. Like you take a fruit and you imagine the fruit as big as you can, fantastically big, and it's still only as big as another handheld fruit. <laughs> yeah. I think is the thing here. Yeah. Yeah. An apple the size of a pumpkin. Now we're talking. That's yeah. 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 And then a pumpkin the size of a wagon. Get out of town. And then there's a little nod yeah, to uh, Jack and the Beanstalk where uh, errant seeds from these gardens produce tales of cottage-sized produce and magic beans spread to the mortal realm. And they keep griffins, peritons, and wyverns. Like, we keep birds. So fun little pets who uh, should probably be free. But yeah. if they're domesticated, then there's not much you can do. <laughs> it is also, like, I don't know, maybe, maybe this is a... Uh... You know, this is a this is a way to characterize the sort of like uh, I don't know, like hoarding and show offiness of the cloud giants. But they literally live in clouds. Like they live in there's there's nothing but open sky all around yeah. them. And so, like you could have a flying creature and just like just like train it to be like a homing pigeon, like just get it to come back. But I'm 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 imagining them having these you know in cages and things. Yeah, they're not like uh, companion animals. They're just showing off. Yeah. Because although, like, in uh, in folklore, giants can be friendly and they can be affable and yeah. or they can be evil and they can be malicious and vindictive. Um, but whatever they are, they tend to be pretty simple. Yeah. So 
if they're embodying a sort of um, aspect of nature, in this case, like airiness and haughtiness of uh, the, the, the ruling place of clouds above the ground, you know, if they are supposed to be like royalty, then it makes sense that they don't actually have close relationships with uh, the things that they keep. Yeah. The, the lesser races they deal with. They do have a, a, a religion and there are a bunch of like giant gods, but I don't really know much about them. But it does mention that um, cloud giants, the evil among them, the, the evil cloud giants, they like to align with this god Memnor for his self-interest and deceitfulness. And good giants appreciate the same god's intellect and silver-tongued speech, which suggests that even among a race, the race of giants, um, good or evil, they don't really... Uh, there's no like war between good and evil giants. They are all just kind of lumped in together. Yeah, interesting that it's like they they they're aligned with different aspects of the same god. Yeah, because it, it makes it kind of a cohesive um, culture. Then even if individuals within that culture are very opposed to each other, but that kind of makes them yeah. to me makes them like um, more of a more of a whole part. Like what am I trying to say? If they are supposed to be anthropomorphized nature, then it just makes them complete in and of themselves. Like there's no conflict within themselves. Nature contains both good and evil, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. Light and darkness, you know, that would make sense from that. Yeah. Um, individuals in the race, in the ordning, compete by conspicuous wealth hoarding. And they also gamble on matters nominally outside their control, such as the results of a battle between mortals. Interference is considered cheating only if you get caught. Otherwise, it's cleverness honoring men. <laughs> so there you have a uh, very Olympian god yeah. element. Yeah. So these guys would be sort of like uh, uh, gambling on the affairs of mortals. These are maybe characters that pe uh, players would approach to help the outcome of a battle or you would try to sway one giant to uh aid you in order to you might appeal to like his wager with other gods to like make him sway things in your favor oh man going to a giant casino and uh just like socially manipulating all of them and using that to affect the yeah, outcome using of battles and history socially, and everything socially uh, engineering Wearing a nice, uh, yeah, it'd be like a James, it'd be like Casino Royale, where you go to the, the giant casino and you have to like saddle up to the, uh, roulette table of mortal outcomes. You've got to deal with these giant chips and giant cards. That's always fun. Yeah, just the body <laughs> uh, humor. Yeah. Next are the fire giants. These are master crafters and organized warriors. They live in volcanoes and they're derivatives. <laughs> They're fire-forged, meaning uh, they live near the blistering heat of magma. Traditional smithies hold places of honor in their dwellings, which uh, constantly belch plumes of smoke. They mine coal and they deforest leagues of land for lumber, if need be. They are also martial experts because they are taught from birth to embrace a legacy of war. At its cradle, a fire giant baby is sung battle chants. As kids, they hurl rocks at each other over rivers of magma, and then they all later go to a formal giant battle school. So they embody fire through uh, the forge. It's not just like a wildfire or a hearth. It is a forge. They have tempered ferocity, endless discipline and training. Their crafters work through insight and experience instead of writing. 
and handed down knowledge. They are feudal lords, so they take serfs or slaves from conquered humanoids and use them to mine ore, which is kind of funny because they'd be like getting a bunch of like children to go work for you. Like you, you are so much more capable. Like a fire giant is so much more capable of mining. Yeah, yeah. Than you or I would be. <laughs> and they have uh, skilled artisans. The greatest crafters among the giants. They specialize in engineering, tools of war, smithwork, and smelting. So they represent industrialized war, the kind of control of fire. I think they're related to Vulcan of uh, Roman mythology, who is the, the forge god. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you're going to anthropomorphize fire, I think it makes sense that it would be this style and not just like a forest fire. Yeah, like it, it's very much like... It's it's pretty explicit. Like it's the fire of the forge. It's the ability of fire to to make things you know like stronger and transformation. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's really dangerous and powerful. So you need discipline and uh, focus. You know. Next is the frost giants. And I'll read the first paragraph because I like it. Gigantic reavers from the freezing lands beyond civilization. Frost giants are fierce, hardy warriors that survive on the spoils of their raids and pillaging. They respect only brute strength and skill in battle, demonstrating both with their scars and the grisly trophies they take from their enemies. They have hearts of ice, no farming, no livestock, only what is captured in raids or hunted across the tundra. They don't cook meat, finding the heat of fresh blood sufficiently warm for their palate. They are reavers of the storm. Amidst a frenzied blizzard, the war horn of the frost giants blare. They prize gems and jewelry more than currency. They are barbarians. They respect brute strength, superior musculature, and impressive scars. Mark your place in the ordning. They make war, not goods. Carving and leatherwork are the only non-combat skills that they appreciate. Bone and ivory are made into jewelry or weapons or tools. They reuse arms and armor of their smaller foes. So they are kind of like uh, the harshness of cold weather. Just hardened yeah. killer that breaks you down to your just your primitive desires and impulses. There's a line somewhere about how um, if frost giants attack or try to raid a larger town, if they have a bank or a money lender or a merchant, they will be like untouched because they don't care about <laughs> that kind of thing. They don't, they don't understand or appreciate the value. Right. So that's where you yeah. go is the bank vault. <laughs> I mean, that yeah. <laughs> That'd be kind of funny. So you'd have like a bunch of um, like northern villages who all try to make their houses look like banks, <laughs> where everyone wears a little suit and has a little like teller box at the front of their house, <laughs> bags with dollar signs everywhere. Yeah, Scrooge and they're also duck ponds of yeah coins. Yeah, definitely. And there's also like a very strong sort of like your stereotypical like Norseman Viking vibe with Frost Giants. Yeah, it's it's that dialed up to 11 where it's yeah. like, that's the only thing they do. Like like Vikings go home eventually. Yeah. It was like a job that, that, that Norse people, some of them had, yeah. which is going raiding sometimes. But this is just like the, the sort of idea of like, no, no, they were all like this. Like that's Frost Giants. Yeah, this is just the, the consuming harshness of of the of the tundra and then we have hill giants who are selfish dim-witted brutes who hunt and raid in constant search of food they blunder through hills and forests devouring what they can bullying smaller creatures and defeating them their laziness and dullness would long ago have spelled their end if not for their formidable size and strength 
Uh, they're primitive. They make mud and wall huts. They make, uh, or sorry, they make mud wall huts. The sweat of their bodies adds to the reek of crude animal skins that they wear. Humanoids and animals are easy prey to be hunted with impunity. They equate size with power, literally. They don't know that they're in an ordinate. They That's just my know favorite other... part. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It makes sense. They just know other giants are bigger and therefore more powerful and to be obeyed. They're voracious eaters because if they don't have anything else to occupy them, they eat as often as possible. They hunt alone or with a direwolf companion so as not to have to share with other tribe members. A hill giant, unlike other common predators feared by farmers, will, will butcher and eat a whole herd of cattle or an entire field of fruits and vegetables. So that makes them a very good, uh, like, levels one through five type of scenario. Yeah. They're stupid and deadly. They're able to digest almost anything, and they have survived for eons living like animals in the hills. They have never needed to adapt because their minds and manners are so simple. They're kind of like the uh, the alligators of, of yeah. fantasy races. Yeah. It's, it's not broken, you know? Yeah. They haven't yeah. changed in millennia. This is my favorite paragraph here. With no culture of their own, they ape the traditions of creatures they manage to observe before eating. They'll climb trees to try and live like elves only to crash down with them, or destroy the houses of humanoid towns trying to enter them as the homeowner would. They have no concept of deception and can be fooled by, for example, getting a bunch of people together to stand on each other's shoulders and wear dirty rags and shake around to scare a hill giant into thinking there's a bigger hill giant around. Oh, that's incredible. So there you have some like classic uh, suggestions for what to do. Um, prescribed encounter. Yeah. It's kind of fun. You know, it's kind of mean, uh, maybe. But every time that I've run a, a, a scenario like this in the game, players love tricking dumb monsters. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes yeah. I think they feel conflicted a little bit, but at the... Uh, uh, ultimately, it's just kind of fun, and I don't know what that says about human nature. Yeah, I mean, like part of it is like, um, like usually the dumb monster that you are you are tricking uh, is was was gonna try to kill you and eat you, right? Right. Like so, it's it's kind of like in a way, it's sort of punching up, but like it yeah. doesn't always feel like it, but it, it kind of is, you know. It's sad I, at the same it's, time. It's a little sad, but there, I, I can see like the, yeah, yeah. But there is like a certain satisfaction of like outsmarting something that could have overpowered you. Yeah. Well, we'll get into it. There's, there's an interesting uh, bit about Jack and the Beanstalk where um, originally Jack might not be so uh, innocent. Oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> it really kind of changes the narrative when um, the giant isn't so evil. Yeah. But uh, hill giants, one more thing, they're raging bullies. They're very emotional. They hate the possibility of being betrayed, insulted, or made to look foolish. They proclaim themselves kings of their territory, ruling by tyranny of violence. So these are perfect um, low-level villains. They're great targets for schemes because they're low intelligence. Um, usually player-made schemes are pretty uh, harebrained. But because they're, the giants are so low intelligence, they can still work, which is, I think, a lot of the... That's the juice in the hill giants. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. You can get a bunch of people to stand on top of each other's shoulders and wear and shake around dirty rags and that'll that'll work. And when you when you when you pull off like a really dumb plan, it does feel good. Yeah. 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 
the hill giants kind of borders on the ogre territory, which we haven't talked about yet. We won't for a while, but yeah, I think it's, I think one of the big differences, um, ogres, I believe are solitary. They're like scary brutes who lurk in darkness and caves and they have like dwellings, Mm. whereas hill giants, uh, participate in folkloric societies. So they're, they're always like encountering other things. They eat villagers. They throw rocks at dragons. They get it to business. Everyone in the region knows them. Yeah, they make themselves known because they think they're they think they're kings. They think that they are better than everyone. Whereas an ogre, I believe, just kind of like um, would rather stick to themselves. Yeah. And, okay, two more. Stone giant. Stone giants are reclusive, quiet, peaceful as long as they're left alone. Their granite gray skin, gaunt features, and black sunken eyes endow stone giants with stern continents. They are private creatures hiding their lives and art away from the world. They live in labyrinthine underground networks. They wordlessly chip away at elaborate carvings. They measure time by the dripping of water. Far from chittering baths for the patrols of their cave bear companions are holy places of complete darkness and silence. Stone takes on its most sacred quality in these cavern cathedrals. Their buttresses and columns carved with beauty that shames the legendary stonecraft of the dwarves. Um, to stone giants, artistry is a virtue. They create intricate, sprawling murals and carve elaborate stone sculptures. The best carvers are made leaders and shamans and prophets, believed to be the hands of their god, Scoreus Stonebones. Is a little. <laughs> That's a good name. I like Scoreus Stonebones. Is like I know there's, it's, put, it's a it's a hat and a hat. Stone giant, stone bones, stones, stone everything. Scoreus, yeah. like as a name though. It's it's good. I just like I like a god with like a first and a last name. <laughs> That is, yes, that's true. Yeah. Is it like when the god just like sounds like it's a guy, you know? Yeah. Howard Johnson. Blessed be his name. (laughs) Uh, Despite their size, they are lithe and graceful. Even in combat, a stone giant strives to hurl boulders with brute strength, but also stunning athleticism and poise. They are dreamers under sky. They regard the world outside their underground homes as a realm of dreams where nothing is entirely true or real. There they behave as you or I might behave in our own dreams, making little account for their actions and never fully trusting what they see or hear. Promises need not be kept, insults made without apology, and murder is of no consequence. I really like that part of it. I like the stone giants a lot. I really like the stone giants. Yeah, that's that the the dream thing is like so cool because it's so unnerving to just to yeah. think about like it's they're not only are they like bigger than me, but like they don't. It's almost like they're solipsists. Like they don't really think this is real. So there's no like they're, they're simulationists. Yeah, which is the scariest thing. One of my coworkers said that her little uh, her little boy, he's like eleven or twelve, was talking about the simulation. Like he believed it. Mm. I was and I was just like. <laughs> I was trying to uh, warn her without fully letting on how deeply concerned I was. Yeah, yeah. Without being like, uh, that's like, that's a school shooting territory. Yeah, I've read Breakfast of Champions. I know what happens at the end of that book. Uh, what happens at the end of that book? Oh, well, there's a guy, it's been a while since I read it, but there's a guy um, who becomes convinced that uh, he is in a solipsistic universe so he's the only actual conscious being everyone else is yeah. like a you know a projection right um yeah. 
and uh, just kind of goes on a rampage at the end because he, he he can't be convinced out of it. That's part of it. I'm, I might be misremembering it. It's been a while since I read it, but yeah, that's like a, a, a major plot point is like a guy just slowly over time becomes convinced that uh, nothing else is real but him. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I guess it's Which is different idea. than thinking that you're dreaming, but you know, yeah. Yeah, but it means it still gives you the kind of impunity to uh, behave however you want. Like we've all, yeah. anyone who's played a video game, maybe not everyone, uh, but I think it's a fairly common behavior to, if it's a role-playing game where there are NPCs hanging around or um, friendly characters, you will pause the game, you will save it, yeah. and then you will just go on a murder, murderous rampage. Yeah. Just to see if you can break the game. Who among us have it, hasn't killed everyone in White Rune? Just to just, see what just, would happen. Just to see. Just to see. Just to see if you could. Yeah. Just running amok in Vivek. Oh, taking yeah. Taking on everyone, all including those meters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're watching you, scum. <laughs> I love those guys. Yeah, me too. That was a good town guard. Just gold masks. They hate yeah, you. Yeah, that's I made my character dress up like them the first time I played. They try to kill you if you dress as them. Yeah. Yeah. Worth it. Yeah. So that's the kind of thing uh, like a stone giant, you know, would get up to. Just uh, Yeah, exactly. Stone yeah. giants are uh, are the worst kind of solipsistic player of a video game. Yeah. Although I don't think they would be so like wantonly murderous cuz they're they don't seem uh to have that kind of temperament. Or they might just kind of like check it out. They might just yeah. mess around. Um, they're artistic, so they might have kind of inscrutable motivations to do things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a good mission for some PCs could be to like guide a stone giant back to its home. Yeah. So it stops like trying to get a new, come up, come up with artistic ideas and what he thinks is a dreamland. Just by, yeah, like, murdering because... sheep and like rearranging their bodies or something. Get back into your hole in the ground in the dark and and carve things. Stay on yeah. the surface, which is also wild because like that's I don't know everything about stone giant because like they're at their at their least threatening. They're underground in the dark by themselves carving stones. You know, like there's there's yeah. there's something they're not about bothering anyone. Yeah, and they're that's and they're interesting. Cause what are they thinking about? They're like the long contemplations of mountains and deep rock. Yeah. Because giants are, I mean, I, I, I can't remember if this has um, been explicitly mentioned, but I've always felt like giants, are, they're also like very long lived, typically, right? Like they're, mm-hmm. you know, so they would have a different perspective on time, especially yeah, the underground might... ones, because you wouldn't even know that, know that, that, you know, days are passing if you're underground. Yeah, you wouldn't understand days. You just ex- experience like one long, deep time period. One long dream. Yeah. And uh, the, the environment suggested by the entry is cool too, of there being vaults of complete silence and darkness. Like maybe the, uh, like a reverse amphitheater where you can hear a pin drop or like in right. a room has been designed to completely absorb noise and sound, uh, noise and, uh, and light. Yeah. I can imagine the stone giants being like really flexible and bendy as well. Yeah, because they're live, right? They're like, yeah. Yeah, and like if they live in underground tunnels, like they have to contort themselves to get around. Like they're they're the strangest giants. They're really weird, yeah. In my imagination. And I wonder I wonder how intentional this is, but like with the, the chambers of like silence and darkness and with their like dreaming thing, um, like it really reminds me of uh, sensory deprivation tanks. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, 
like that, like with the absence of stimulus that that the mind just creates its own. Yeah. They're intronauts, which makes them especially susceptible to solipsism. Yeah. Finally, we have the storm giant. They are con uh, contemplative seers living in places far removed from mortal civilization. They have violet or purple-gray skinned. They are benevolent and wise until angered when their fury will affect the fate of thousands. They are distant prophet kings. They live in isolated refuges above the world or below the sea, beyond the reach of most creatures. They live in cloud-top castles with speck-sized dragons flying below or algae-covered palaces at the bottom of the sea. They are detached oracles. They recall the glory of ancient giant empires forged by the god Anam and wish to restore its former glory. They don't compete for status in the ordning, but live in contemplative seclusion, watching the depths and the stars for signs of Anam's favor. They read other omens to foretell the rise and fall of kings and empires, see the beginning of fortune and disaster, and learn the pattern of seemingly unrelated events. Though they are usually indifferent to the subjects of their predictions, they may choose to willingly divulge their foreknowledge to benevolent beings who visit them, so long as they are shown respect. They live solitary lives, they communicate infrequently with others, and then only to compare signs and omens, or to engage in rare courtships. Parents stay together to raise children, then return to isolation. Some storm giants are worshipped as gods by some humanoid cult cultures, though it is the status the former largely ignores. So the storm giants are the closest to just pure elemental, they're just gods. They're not even Olympian yeah. gods, they're just like one with creation itself. They don't care for mortal affairs or material concerns. Yeah, and they're, they it's, it seems like they're what they're you know they're like looking for signs. They're they're contemplating things. They're sort of like you know they're they're sort of like uh, uh the because there's there's all the ideas uh, you know it when it opens with giants it talks about the, the glorious empires of like the ancient ancient times, and it sort of seems like storm giants are also like yeah they're remembering the past but they're also looking. They're sort of contemplating the deep future as well as history. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're not hung up on restoring glory, although they, some of them are religiously. So maybe they are like slowly over time bending things to work out in their favor, but it's not in an egotistical way or an idle way like the cloud giants might. They have like, they're the planners and the long-term yeah. influencers. And uh, so I just made a small comparison here to highlight the difference in the power of the giants. So the storm giant has on average 230 hit points. They're a challenge rating of 13 and they can do things. They have a great sword. They have a lightning bolt that they can throw. They can throw rocks. They can levitate at will. They can control weather and a bunch of other spells. And then at the bottom, you have hill giants who have 105 hit points, so less than half. They're a challenge rating five, and they just have a club and a rock. You can always throw a rock, though. I, I think they, they, they can all throw rocks. They can all throw rocks. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the yeah. uh, the differences that we're looking at here. Um, yeah, that's, those are the giants. What do you think about that? I think there's a lot of good stuff there. I, I like that Um, it's like with these different with the kind of like the the society and ecology of giants that they created it like i kind of i think it really works with giants because like at least with 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 having these different kinds all kind of coexisting in the same world because 
I don't know, we'll get into it. We'll probably get into it a bit later, but there's so many different sort of kinds of giants. You can kind of get like the sort of giant you want out of the ones we just talked about, you know? Yeah, you have like affable social giants and the cloud giants, or you can have it just be a, a, a terrible um, raider with the frost giants. Like all the uh, pretty well any type you would see in folklore or in yeah. a movie or whatever is represented somewhere in this scale, somewhere in this uh, spectrum. Yeah. Though I guess, like, I don't know, that, that, that there are some, like, it begs some questions to me. Like, do I'm trying to imagine through the ordining, you know, like uh, how, I don't know, some kind of request or order or command could get passed down the chain, <laughs> like throughout, like how would it sort of evolve uh, through the interpretation of these different giants if, if like the same idea kind of like went from the top, went from storm giants all the way through the ordining down to the hill giants somehow. Like, like an, or like a, a, a call to organize somehow? Yeah, yeah, like if a, like if a storm giants for whatever reason, like needed to have something done. Because uh, next up is like cloud giants. The storm giant is like, okay, my cloud giant brethren, I need you to find a thing. And then the cloud giant's like, well, I'm going to delegate this too. So then they, they keep kicking it down. Yeah. And uh, like, I, I just, I'm wondering like how much interaction between <laughs> the kinds of giants actually happens for it to be necessary to have like this like chain of hierarchy. Yeah, how does it how does it work exactly? Yeah, le, yeah, because I'm having if a hard time get... imagining like storm giants. I guess it's a, pretty explicit that they don't care that much about hill giants, but like being more concerned with hill giants than like a noble small folk. You know what I mean? Yeah, more concerned with them at all. I don't know. Yeah, like how do they how do they actually interact? these interspecies meetings and is it taken as like is our cloud giants like happy to help or are they like eager to just delegate and twist their orders into something that benefits them yeah and eventually each cast in the ordning kicks the uh the request further down the ladder until you have a, a hill giant who's just being like browbeaten into fulfilling some sort of prophecy that it doesn't understand and it doesn't get done because somebody puts on a giant trench coat and shakes around yeah <laughs> and this is how the giant empire fell. Yeah, they kept delegating. mostly unchanged since the original monster manual um the core ideas have just been kind of maintained uh and refined in some ways the one thing i did find 
Well, I guess there's two things. The The biggest difference is that originally, every giant explicitly, whenever they leave their lair, they have a giant sack with them full of precious sentimental items and one to 6,000 gold coins. So there's your reason for uh, assaulting a giant. That's a giant. <laughs> Look, if I know one thing about giants is they always got their sack with one to 6,000 gold coins in yeah, there. Yeah, and their sentimental items. Um, which also that plays with the whole idea of like them being, uh, dangerous, but sympathetic. Like if you, if you just assassinate a giant to get its one to 6,000 gold, and then you find a bunch of like, like a teddy bear and a little photo booth portrait with the giant and his like high school girlfriend and his like EpiPen, like, like, (laughs) yeah, his inhaler. Yeah. Their loyalty card for the cafe. One of those pens with the four different colors, and you can click it down. Tamagotchi. It's still alive, too. Yeah, except the Tamagotchi is the size of a person, and it's a real person trapped in, like, a little (laughs) cave, in a little, like, maze. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you got to put food in through a little hole. Uh, The other thing that giants used to have are each kind of giant had explicitly a type of animal that would be found in its lair that they would use as guards. Oh, yeah? Cloud giants had spotted lions. Fire giants had hellhounds. Frost giants had winter wolves. Uh, Hill giants have dire wolves. They kept those. Yeah, that was the one thing. And then uh, also stone giants have cave bears, which, which were mentioned also. Right, yes. Um, and the whole, the whole original entry for the same number of subtypes of genres or, uh, subtypes of giants fits on less than two pages. Well, so the whole, the giant, monster inflation. Yeah. Lots of inflation. Etymology. The word giant comes from gigas, um, from ancient Greek or possibly proto-Greek. That's where we get, um, the same, the same root is where we get gigantic and gargantuous. Oh, Yeah. Um, so it is, giants are one of those things where there are just so many in folklore and myth. So I'm going to try to be kind of general and then maybe touch a couple specifics. Yeah. So there are prim- uh, giants are primarily studied as geomythologies as coined by Dorothy Vitaliano, a geologist at Indiana university in 1968. The quote is, Geomythology indicates every case in which the origin of myths and legends can be shown to contain references to geological phenomena and aspects, in a broad sense including astronomical ones, comets, and eclipses. Primarily, there are two kinds of geologic folklore, that in which some geologic feature or the occurrence of some geologic phenomenon has inspired a folklore explanation, and that which is the garbled explanation of some actual geologic event, usually a natural catastrophe. And that's why giants, as we understand them, different from ogres and different from ettins and different from whatever else, giants are tied to landscape and elemental nature. Yeah. Hills are big, so hill giants are big. Volcanoes are big. Mountains are big. Tundra is big. Storms are big. Clouds are big. So if nature is, if we sense nature to be inhabited and for there to be a human spirit, then it is a very large human is yeah. the idea. Yeah. The author Claudine Cohen, in her 22 book, The Fate of the Mammoth, 
argued that the human of uh, the history of human interaction with fossil bones of prehistoric megafauna was heavily influenced by giant lore. The proto-scientific study of giants appears in several phases of human history. Herodotus reported that the remains of Orestes, uh, Pliny, our old friend Pliny from various other monster entries, described a giant skeleton found in Crete after an earthquake and seemed to refer to evolution as the process by which giants become human size over time. So I don't know how that works, but that's kind of interesting. It's um with the the like the bones and fossils aspect of this. It's it's cool cuz it kind of connects to um the connection between giants and dragons again because there's a there's a theory that the one of the reasons why they're dragons are such a common feature in mythology in like different parts of the world or because people found fossilized dinosaurs and were like, well, this was a, this must've been like a, a real thing at one point, you know, like if you find a T-Rex skull and it's, you know, uh, like, a like 100 AD in China, that's like, yeah, this, this is a, this is a clearly a skull. And so what do the rest of it look like? And so that that's a, and there would be, you know, dinosaurs, fossils were found, but like not identified as dinosaurs in like all over the world. And so it's not a, it's actually like pretty reasonable to think like, oh, well, this is a big monster. And so to see that that is why that is at the origin of a lot of uh, giant mythology too is pretty cool. Yeah, in a lot of ways, it's an easier leap to go instead of a dragon, which is like the same sort of deal, finding these these fossils and not knowing what they are. Just to think that it's a big guy. Yeah, because like a lot of bones, like... it's just going to look like a big femur anyways, right? Yeah. So if you find like a big like bone-shaped bone. It's like, yeah, I see myself in that. That was probably a big guy. A big guy, yeah. Because that's something else that giants kind of make me think of is they're not just like the landscape, but they're also people. It's like the monstrosity of the human body when you blow it out of proportion. Yeah. Like it, it becomes, even though it's familiar, it becomes uh, off-putting and strange and dangerous when it's when the, when the proportion or the, the scale increases. There's a little bit of background body horror to it for yeah. me. Another way of looking at uh, giants is biblically, because there's a rich tradition of giant people being included in the Bible and various other Abrahamic uh, flavor texts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bible's full of giants. Bible's full of giants. Uh, Genesis contains the uh, Nephilim before and after Noah's flood. Uh, the word Nephilim is loosely translated as giants in some translations of the Hebrew Bible. Um, they're mysterious beings who are described as being large and strong, sometimes taken to mean the fallen ones. Their origins are disputed. Some view them as offspring of fallen angels and humans. And also the book of Numbers includes the discouraging report by the spies sent by Moses into Canaan. The quote is, We can't attack these people. They are stronger than we are. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked, and we looked the same to them. So this is yeah. uh, the period where Moses and the, uh, the, uh, the Jews wandering after being freed from Egypt for, uh, I forget how long it is, 40 years? Yeah. Are, are just like warring against everyone. And some of these stories include, um, it paints them as the underdogs. And it's a, I think a, uh, a repeating motif in a lot of um, 
cultural mythologies that you, the chosen people, fought much bigger people. They were so big. They were huge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was so hard to fight them and win, but we did. Even though they were huge, they were so big. So there's a lot of that in the Bible. Yeah. Well, um, that's always when you're when you're when you're telling a story about a fight you got in. You always want to play it's the up fisherman's lie. It's was, the fisherman's right? lie. Yeah. yeah. Like how we don't know how big Goliath was. Like assuming Goliath existed, there's this whole thing. The Bible tells of David and the Philistine Goliath. Goliath is often portrayed as a giant in retellings of the biblical narrative although he appears to be significantly smaller than other giants, biblical or otherwise. Yeah. The Masoretic text version of the book of Samuel, which is a thing I don't know what that is, <laughs> but it, I believe that it is a, uh, some sort of, let's look this up, is the authoritative Hebrew and Aramaic text of the 24 books of the Hebrew Bible in rabbinic Judaism. So it's some deep Judaism stuff. Yeah. So this book gives Goliath's height as six cubits and one span, which is somewhere between 10 foot 3 inches and 12 feet 2 inches. While the first century Jewish historian Flavius Josephus and the Dead Sea Scrolls give Goliath's height as four cubits and one span, which is only seven feet and one inch to eight feet and six inches. So that's barely a giant. Yeah. That's not a giant. That's yeah. a big guy. There's seven foot tall people. Yeah. 10 foot tall? Now we're, that's like questionable. Yeah. Although back then, I think, right? Like everyone, most people were like, it was pretty average to be five feet tall. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. So seven feet is still kind of remarkable, but I don't know. You have to do better yeah. than that. I always make this mistake in D&D games. I remember one time I had uh, the PCs, they didn't have to fight these fire giants, but I put them there and then a fight did break out. But um, I didn't know my scale very well or like how big like a story of a building is because to me like a giant when i think of a giant it's like it's kind of boring to say a giant is like 20 feet tall yeah yeah because i can think of 20 feet so i think i, I like i described the giant using uh, a ballista like a giant sized ballista as being like a hundred feet wide or something right then everyone started losing their minds or getting mad at me until I, I realized, <laughs> until like I kind of worked it out and realized just how like insanely large a hundred feet is. Yeah. Yeah. So it's difficult. You really have to know, like you can't just be imaginative and also describe measurements in feet. Well, you have to like kind of actually know what you're talking about. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Especially like, um, it's really hard to estimate because our brains are, this is a, this is a true and weird thing. We're better at estimating like length horizontally than like vertically. Uh, we're really? like humans. Yeah, oh, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, because like uh, like evolutionarily, like what was more useful to like you know bipedal like all, like at least completely or partially nomadic hunter gatherers? It was like knowing how far away something was if you had to chase it or go over and get it, but like. You don't like really actually like how often we, we actually yeah, we don't uh, travel up or down very much. Yeah, yeah. We're also bad at looking up. Right. We're always we're bad at looking up. Um so you, like it's a uh, this thing where you can look at a tree and I think anybody who's climbed something can attest to this. You can look at something and be like that doesn't look that tall and you get up there. It's like no, it's really tall. We underestimate yes. how tall things are. Yes. Yes, exactly. Like yeah. I remember climbing up on my the roof of my house when I was a kid thinking that it looked so easy and then you get up there and then uh your whole your whole world kind of opens up <laughs> you're like yeah 
I I definitely climbed a tree in my uh, in my grandmother's backyard and then didn't know how to get down. Oh yeah, it's been like a there. whole other it's a whole other world. I'm still up there in some ways. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So and also, but with um, I don't know uh, like with it with a like with these just to, going back to like folklore about giants and 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 stories uh and uh you know from from religious texts about giants, but like at a certain point these were oral traditions, stories people told. And I wonder, mm-hmm. like, how often, like, not even just that, like, things get exaggerated as the story gets told over and over again. Like, that's that's a phenomenon that we're all sort of aware of. But, like, I also think how often, like, because people will use hyperbole as a rhetorical device, right? Somebody's like, oh, this is the greatest thing. This is the best thing I've ever eaten, which is just another way of saying, like, I really liked it. Or it's like, oh, it was, it was like, gigantic. Like, people will exaggerate. And in context, when you're listening to the person exaggerate, you know they're exaggerating to like hammer the point home. But like mm-hmm. after you know, that could get lost, like literally lost in translation when like things are translated from one language to another to another, and you lose the context of that. Um, like it could have could have just been a seven foot tall guy that was Goliath, just a seven foot tall guy, or a six foot tall guy, or a six six foot tall guy when everyone else is like maybe five feet. Or could have had big shoes. Yeah, he could have had big shoes. You know, it's um big, a tall helmet, long face. Yeah, because if you think about if you, if you think about like ancient peoples, uh, not that like if you're listening to this at home and you you have no idea what I look like, this won't mean that much to you. But like most most ancient peoples were probably built more like me. I'm not a big guy, right? But right. um, just like through genetic variation, like even if most people are around my size, you'll get a shack every now and then. You know. Yeah, you just that you've rolled the dice enough times. Yeah. And especially the tendency for the, the game of telephone for uh, the size of something to increase. If people are retelling a story and they heard it one way, they might feel the need to embellish it further, yeah. which is how it gets bigger and bigger. That's how you get up. Uh, you have to make yourself more special than the last person who told it. You got to tell it better, right? Yeah, that's 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 a uh, that's like a that's how we got Paul Bunyan, right? Yeah, so Paul Bunyan uh, actually had something about him here. He he's actually um, the result of a official ad campaign. Oh wow! I so didn't he know was, this. Um, yeah, so in 1916, the advertising copywriter William B. Loghead wrote a pamphlet for the Red River Lumber Company using the Paul Bunyan folk character, who is known only to, like, as a sub uh, a subculture of, of woodsmen. Um, he attributes the creation of several American landscapes, landmarks, and natural wonders to Paul Bunyan. So Paul Bunyan is the, is the, is the gigantic lumberjack and his blue ox who wandered around North yeah. America and, like, built all of the wonders of nature with his ox out of it <laughs> Paul Bunyan uh, and the ox is named Babe Paul Bunyan and Babe are said to have created the 10,000 lakes of Minnesota by their footprints and uh, there are more details of their exploits creations of body of water later authors possibly tourist agents would add other geographic features to ones that Paul supposedly created um, he created the Grand Canyon by pulling his axe behind him and Mount Hood by putting stones on his own campfire 
Later, authors invented tales of Paul Bunyan finding a female giant as a spouse. Her first name is not revealed in the story. She's referred to as Mrs. Paul. <laughs> the tale also mentions her having a daughter named Tiny. There's also a tale called Paul Bunyan Finds a Wife, where Paul rescues a lovely red-haired giant lady who has been trapped underneath an avalanche. And the grateful maiden, fittingly named Sylvia, for the Latin word for forest, falls in love with the kind and chivalrous treetop tall bachelor and marries him the same day. Um, the, the burial of the original material under the stories of the commercial writers made it unclear for a long time whether Paul Bunyan was ever a genuine folkloric character, but apparently it's been researched and established that this was true. But it's the only reason he's talked about why you and I knew who he was is because of the Red River uh, forestry campaign. Wild. Yeah. He's interesting for being like, as much as the giants are symbols of nature or nature personified, um, they come out of nature. Whereas Paul Bunyan was like a large, he was a giant, but he became a woodsman. He conquered and tamed nature. He shaped nature with his prowess, which is like the most American symbol you can get. Where like, like going out there wearing a plaid shirt yeah. and uh, like making lakes with your footprints and yeah, some other weird stuff like. Something something about um like what is the stove skating thing? I don't know. Stove There's a skating? lot of yeah. What's that? I don't know. I found a chart. Um, <laughs> what are you talking oh. about? <laughs> it's on the it's on the Wikipedia article for Paul Bunyan, uh -huh. and uh, under the uh, which I think is a, is is a, like what what you were just talking about, like it being like whether or not it's a real folklore thing thing. But there's yeah. a subheading here: debated authenticity. Okay. Yeah, and um, in here, oh yeah, there it uh, is. Yeah, yeah. So I guess these are different because you got stove skating, pea soup lake, giant camp, gigantism, mm -hmm. winter of the blue snow, blue ox, logging the Dakotas, creating joy. So yeah, I we don't need to keep. Yeah. <laughs> I just I I uh... very interesting. So they've they've researched and and uh, analyzed where different tales of Paul Bunyan came from and where they're included in what, whoever is writing about him. Yeah. That's just like, um, people are very good at this. There's a, there's a whole research school. We've talked about it a little bit, I think, in the uh, the Genie episode, but where I was first introduced this introduced to this idea. But it comes up in the uh, Jack and the Beanstalk tale, where the sort of germ of the idea follows an archetype which was established more than five millennia ago, which folklorists classify as ATU, 328 and ATU is the Arne Thompson Uther Index, which is a catalog system for folklore types designated the boy who stole Ogre's treasure. Um, so Jack and the Beanstalk. Jack is a recurring stock and English hero belonging to a set of tales called Jack Tales. In this one, Jack, probably the most famous one, a poor country boy trades the family cow for a handful of magic beans which grow into a massive towering beanstalk reaching up into the clouds. Jack climbs the beanstalk and finds himself in the castle of an unfriendly giant. The giant senses Jack's presence and cries, Fee, fi, fo, fum, I smell the blood of an Englishman. Be he alive or be he dead, I'll grind his bones to make my bread. Then, finally, outwitting the giant, Jack is able to retrieve many goods once stolen from his family, including a bag of gold, an enchanted goose that lays golden eggs, and a magic golden harp that plays and sings by itself. He then escapes by chopping down the beanstalk, 
and the giant who is pursuing him falls to his death, and Jack and his family prosper. So this is like uh, the morality of this story depends on a few different versions. And I think the way I remember it is that it's like Jack was um, villainized. His family uh, disputed his decision to sell their their family cow for a handful of magic beans like he'd been duped. Yeah. But then it actually ends up working is sort of a, a story about taking chances, about making uh, investments, plan like uh, uh, risk-taking um, buying NFTs, maybe. Yeah, yeah. It always seemed weird to me because the that interpretation of it, the moral seemed to be like, no, no. When somebody spends all of your money on something you think is stupid, just give it some time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the, the some other versions that are, that are a little, they try to be a little simpler. Even though I think that is like the main uh, point of it. The original story which I couldn't find an exact retelling of, but apparently the, the original story portrays a hero gaining the sympathy, a hero in quotes, keep in mind, the hero gaining the sympathy of a man's wife, hiding in his house, robbing him, and finally killing him. So in that version, it's actually yeah. kind of an inverted uh, morality where Jack is the home invader who seems innocent, gets in the house, steals a bunch of stuff, and then kills the the homeowner <laughs> the man <laughs> yeah and then uh in more moralized version of this a fairy woman explains to jack that the giant had robbed and murdered his father justifying jack's actions as retribution you can find this in the uh as early as 1890 in right. the red fairy book um other versions give no justification because there was none in the version in previous versions although there are references and subtle uh hints making reference to the giant's previous meals of stolen oxen and young children, like bones hanging around in the, in the giant's house, making him kind of uh, subtly dangerous instead of explicit. And other versions have the giant as a more clear villain, terrorizing smaller folk and stealing from them so that Jack becomes a legitimate protagonist. These are more uh, contemporary tales. There's a 1952 film, Abbott and Costello, where the giant is blamed for the poverty at the foot of the beanstalk, and he's been stealing food and wealth, and that the hen who lays golden eggs originally belonged to Jack's family. But I think it's interesting when you invert it, because this that's a very uh, D&D-style thing for like someone to enter a giant's house wrongly. <laughs> yeah. Without permission, without any reason to, and uh, once again, the players are the villains. Yeah. And take all his stuff, uh, kill him. Yeah. Leave, yeah. You've got also, I've got a couple examples, giants in a few different mythologies. In Ireland, according to legend, the columns of the Giant's Causeway yeah. are built by giants. The story goes that the Irish giant Finn McCool was challenged to a fight by the Scottish giant Ben and Donner. Finn accepted the challenge and built the causeway across the North Channel so that the two could meet. In one version, Finn defeats Ben and Donner. In another, Finn hides from Ben and Donner when he realizes that his foe is much bigger than he is. Finn's wife disguises Finn as a baby and tucks him in a cradle. When Ben Adonner sees the size of the so-called baby, he reckons that his father, Finn, must be a giant among giants, and he flees back to Scotland <laughs> in fright, destroying the causeway behind him so that Finn wouldn't be able to chase him. 
and these are uh these columns are these basalt like stacked um almost like tiles they're, they're like they're, a, kind of, they're hexagons right yeah yeah they're part of like a big giant ancient lava flow across the north sea or the north channel not the north sea uh, Finnacle is not always a giant, but is always a hero with supernatural abilities. So, but sometimes he's a giant. I mean, his name is Finn McCool, right? Yeah, exactly. He's got to be. And he's related. Hero. It's yeah. It's all related to the the Fomorians, which we talked about before, which are like monstrous people. So sometimes, yeah. sometimes they're giants, and sometimes they're just uh, bad people. And then in Greece, you've got uh, the Gigantes, the children of Uranus and Gaia. Where some uh, sometimes they had snake-like legs. Also, they were involved in a conflict with the Olympian gods called the Gigantomachy when Gaia had them attack Mount Olympus. This bot this battle was eventually settled when the hero Hercules or Heracles decided to help the Olympians. The Greeks believed that some of these giants uh, lie buried from that time under the earth, and that their tormented quivers resulted in earthquakes and volcanic eruptions. That's another interesting way to have giants is like have a giant stuck under a mountain and like causing problems to uh, locals on, on top of the surface and you have to yeah. like free them somehow or like get them unstuck. And then finally, Norse mythology, the Jotnar, related to the English Etten, they are in opposition to the gods, just like the Greek ones. They are, although they're translated as giants, they are described mostly roughly human-sized. Um, some are portrayed as huge, though, as the frost giants. Then there are also fire giants and mountain giants. The Yotnar are the origin of most of various monsters in North mythology. North mythology, And in the eventual Battle of Ragnarok, the giants will storm Asgard and fight the gods until the world is destroyed. Even so, the gods themselves are related to the Yotnar by marriages and descent and... There are also Yatnar, such as Aegir, who have good relationships with the gods and bear little difference in status to them. Odin himself is the great-grandson of the Yatnar, Ymir. Norse mythology also holds that the entire world of men is created from the flesh of Ymir, a giant of cosmic proportions. So these, these are sort of like the titans of Greek myth, um, except in Norse mythology, the, these giants and gods kind of coexist in a state mm -hmm. of constant and ready to boil over rivalry. And then it needs to be said that in, I think as sort of mentioned before, but explicitly giants are said to have built the remains of and ruins of previous civilizations lost to history, just like, uh, people in, uh, post-Roman England thought that many of the structures left behind were the works of giants. Yeah. Which gives them a, even more of a kind of like one with nature quality because you have these like ruins kind of grown over full of wonder and mystery. Yeah. And that's definitely what I imagine when I like, uh, I don't know. I, I love the idea of ruins of like old you know, giant society because you have that sort of like, you know, grown over stone sort of thing, but like to have the structures be larger than just like so much larger than, than, than would be reasonable. Cause that's what it seemed you could like. Make, yeah. Totally. That's, and that's what it would seem like to, um, you know, like, like, a uh, to like a lot of, um, you know, Europeans post the collapse of the Roman empire, if, if they, if they weren't like educated and didn't know their history and everything, you, you would find like, imagine the Colosseum or something like that. Like, this is bonkers. Yeah. yeah. Old aqueducts, things like that. And, uh, and D and D is filthy with ancient ruins. 
Love, love a good ancient ruin. Yeah. And I just had one more story to tell because I always found this interesting. My brother was really into this story. I'm not sure why in particular he was into it, but it is about the Cardiff giant. So there's a preoccupation with giants in a lot of uh, uh, contemporary religions, especially offshoots of Christianity, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, because of the Nephilim thing, the whole descendant from angels thing. Yeah. So especially in the States where people are uh, particularly enthusiastic about hoaxes and um, sensationalism, the Cardiff Giant is one of the most famous archaeological hoaxes in American history. It was a 10-foot-tall, 3,000-pound petrified man uncovered on October 16, 1869 by workers digging a well behind the barn of William C. Stubb Newell. <laughs> His name is... <laughs> Uh, in Cardiff, New York. So he covered a giant with a tent and it became an attraction site, which I'm sure he charged money for. Uh, and uh, P.T. Barnum, the famous circus wrangler, yeah, famous circus haver, made an unauthorized copy, which he kept on display and is still on display in Marvin's Marvelous Mechanical Museum in Farmington Hills, Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> So the giant was the creation of a New York tobacconist named George Hull. Uh, George Hull was attracted to science and the theory of evolution, um, but he got into an argument with somebody named Reverend Turk and his supporters at a Methodist revival meeting somehow, uh -huh. um, particularly concerning uh, Genesis 6-4, which states that giants who once lived, there were giants who once lived on earth. Uh, Hull lost the argument because he was in the minority, at that gathering and he was angered by his defeat and the credulity of people so he wanted to prove how easily he could fool these people with a fake giant <laughs> oh man <laughs> are you getting so angry that you lost an argument with a bunch of like religious fundamentalists that you make a three thousand pound uh fake yeah yeah so many that's at and and they're and the people are still gonna like point to that fake thing like no no see <laughs> Yeah, is a that's kind of how like a lot of flat Earth stuff started. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah, there's a um, there's a big correlation between giant. There are giant conspiracy theories also. Oh yeah, I mean I guess yeah, I mean, that should go without saying. But like contemporary, there are people who will share pictures of like old buildings, right? And they're like, <laughs> like surely giants and no other explanation or like here's this picture of a really big shoe why would somebody make a shoe <laughs> that big unless yes. there were giants yes yeah yeah do you have a favorite um fictional depiction of giants um i'm partial to the rock biter who is a sort of giant yeah um i'm trying to think if i like um Specifically in the 1989 animated BFG movie. Do you know that one? BFG? The Big Friendly Giant. But the 80s. The 80s animated, like the Roll Doll book. And then there's an 80s okay. adaptation of it um, where yeah. I forget the kid's name, but when he gets stolen from his house, I remember this because <laughs> the weird sort of like not fully human looking, like a more troll-like giant, but these giants would somehow sneak around London at night and reach into kids' homes and take them into their, like, underworld, like, volcano world. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it was way darker than it had any any right to be. I always liked, liked uh, the, the creepy giants in the BFG. In that particular 
that particular attitude. The 1989 BFG. Okay. Yeah. I have never, uh, I was never, I never read this book or seen yeah. this adaptation. That film is, it's like, it's, uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's much darker than it has any right to be. It's very strange. I haven't seen it since I was a kid, but I remember it being uh, wild. If you look at images, you just see the friendly giant, the nice one that rescues the kid. But well, that might have the, been why I stayed away from it because it sounded kind of boring. Like a yeah, friendly no, it's, giant. Yeah, what am the, I going to do well, with the friendly that? giants? Yeah, keeps them from getting eaten by the the not friendly giant, who is all the other giants. All the other ones want nothing more than to eat. Uh, British children <laughs> yeah it's just funny because you wouldn't think that they'd be they don't look super healthy no and therefore not nutritious but I don't know um, but I do I think what I really liked was the idea that they were also somehow stealthy like that nobody knew these giants were walking through the streets at night reaching in through windows yeah that sounds terrifying yeah there's actually like I don't often think of giants in the like the media at large but now that I'm thinking about it, there's actually a a role-playing game supplement, a module called Deep Carbon Observatory. And this is kind of like an indie uh, systemless game made by Scrap Princess and Patrick Stewart, who are kind of figures in the, uh, the OSR kind of beginnings um, in the days of Google+, Plus, which are... I am saying things that don't mean a lot to a lot of people, <laughs> but it is a very cool uh, module that takes place in this underground um, observatory that I believe it's like an observatory that looks down like into the earth. Cool. And there is a giant. So this is what I was thinking of when, this, when we were talking about the stone giant. I was actually ripping off this idea about there's a giant who lives in this observatory, but he's entirely uh, flexible. He's like made of putty basically, but he, so he can reach around doors and hallways, which is an extremely terrifying, uh, image. Yeah. Um, so that's what I like, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. And then you got, I guess, like, I yeah, like a lot of, the, what were you going to say? Oh, I just like, I, I like that the through line between our favorite giants is that they're spooky and grabby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what you hate. That's what you hate about big people. They can just pick you up. I, yeah, I just I don't I don't want a big hand to come. I in don't and want grab a big me. hand picking me up. Yeah. One of the one of the scariest things that ever happened to me was I was a full grown man. This happened maybe like six years ago. Um, we were at the the spill, which is a bar here in or used to be a bar here in Peterborough, where Wes and I live. Yeah. Uh, sorry, it is Doc's does. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's a bar here, or it used to be, and. Uh, still in my heart exists but there's a band playing and they got off stage and they were getting their shit together and it was a big party atmosphere lots of chaos and they were leaving they decided to leave and one of them who was like seven and seven feet tall i, I want to say maybe not that tall maybe he was like six five or something but like big, way bigger than me he i found out after thought i was one of his bandmates from behind <laughs> And uh, in the spirit of rowdiness, as they were leaving, he thought I was his friend who was like not leaving, was like, was being uh, stubborn. So he picked me up from behind and like carried and like in like a, in like a lock. So he had my arms, like I was right. totally taken from behind by surprise by a person much larger than me. 
in like a sleeper hole or something. Like <laughs> he had my arms pinned up behind my, like I couldn't move at all. And he just lifted me and like carried me out to side. <laughs> and I couldn't see who he was. I didn't know what was happening. And I remember uh, my wife, Emily, was working the bar and she and I like locked eyes. <laughs> she just like watched me get carried away and she didn't have anything to say about it. I think she just thought I, she, I think she thought it was like I was part of it. Like I was right. having fun. Like in on it somehow. Yeah. But I was like, I was totally horrified. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that was my encounter with the real life uh, giant. Yeah. He put me down. Nothing came of it. I was, he just put me down and he looked at me and he was like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> like you, he didn't apologize. I didn't ask for an apology. It was a very uh, kind of tense moment. Yeah. And then he went back inside and got his, his friend and I just kind of, uh, did had he to just brush pick it his friend up, up in a lock as well and just carry no, him out I the same think way? He, no, uh, I think he took, no, I think he took a, uh, much more civilized approach after that and i hope he learned his lesson because yeah man that wasn't fun <laughs> <laughs> yeah this is why i wish i had like i don't know i'm i'm jealous of small animals with a with with cool defense mechanisms like i'd like to have yeah. spines or like be able to shoot blood out of my eyes or something yeah. like that make it stink real bad suddenly yeah yeah just give me some like lizard powers <laughs> yeah or i could make my legs break off so i could escape or something yeah. No, yeah. I'm not, I'm not a, I'm an average person. Like I'm, I'm not small, but I'm not that big. I'm right in the middle. So like it's a, on average, it's a nice place to be, but it also means that, um, I'm at a disadvantage with certain people at either end of the scale yeah. in a fight. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, that's, uh, that's monsters for you. Yeah. That's monsters. And next time, I'm very excited about the gibbering mouther. Oh yeah, that's one that's of my favorites for years and years. Um, to look forward to that. Um, also, I wanted to mention I didn't have any corrections from the ghouls episode. Did you have any corrections? No, I didn't have anything. That was a perfect episode. Great. Okay, that's good. Okay, uh, you got anything to plug? Uh, nothing, nothing now, but, uh, I got some irons in the fire. So, so. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I, I asked that without knowing if you did or not. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that's good. So look forward to that and yeah. take us away. All right, monsters, get out of here. Monster Manual Mash is Christopher Lawson and Wes Grist. Edited by me, Chris Lawson. Find me on Twitter at Chris M. Lawson. Music by Wes a.k.a. Elias. You can find more of his music on bandcamp.com slash Elias. That's numeral zero L-I-A-S. It's not a hacker thing, it's just what was available. Thanks to Sarah B. Milner for our logo. Thanks to everyone listening, and to everyone talking monsters on the Monster Manual Mash Facebook group. Monsters to you.